Good morning, church. It's good to be with you, and, and I echo, uh, I echo um, Daniel's anticipation. We're almost there. Um, and, uh, and I, yeah, I don't know who's more excited, the kids or me. Um, because I really, you know, you get to this point where Christmas is just right there, and it's really close, and you can just, you can almost taste it, how close we are, right? And maybe you can taste it, because there's a lot of Christmas cookies rolling around right now. Uh, maybe you're tasting a little more than you should. Um, there's grace and forgiveness for you. Um, you know, it's Christmas time. Enjoy. Um, I am reminded, though, of something very, very important, and that is just how full and how rich Christmas is, and how full and how rich this time of anticipation, this, this time of Advent is. And especially as we enter into this final week, we, we have talked about hope, we have talked about peace, we talked about joy last week, and now we enter into the week where we highlight love. Probably, you know, as, as Paul talked about it, love being the thing that kind of binds all of the other Christian virtues together. More than the foundation, it's kind of the glue, it's the connecting piece, right? And as we look at how, how deep the love of the incarnation of God is, how deep this idea of Advent is, I don't want us to miss how full and how rich it can be. I, I'm reminded of shortly after, um, shortly after the war began in Afghanistan, Anderson Cooper uh, went out for CNN and was interviewing and, and talking with uh, a lot of the, the Afghanistan nationals, um, people, trying to give kind of a face to what was going on and trying to give a face to, to the, the country um, that, that this was all happening in. And he is, he is sitting down with a, with a member of, of the Afghan militia, and he's talking to this person with a translator and, and is trying to kind of help them understand where he's from and, and where the United States is and, and all of this. And he's, he's starting to draw pictures. And he's starting to draw pictures of the world. And he's kind of like, okay, so you're here, and then there's this big ocean here, and then I'm over here. And he, it, it's just, it's not translating. And, and you can see him kind of starting to get frustrated because the guy's like, I just don't understand. I just don't understand. And he's wondering, is it, is it the language barrier? Is it the, is it the, is it the you know, cultural barrier? Like, what is it that we don't understand? And then all of a sudden, he, it, the light kind of clicks on for Cooper here. He realizes the guy that he's talking to has never been taught that the world is round. He has no, he has no concept in his understanding that there is another dimension to the world. It's flat to him. And so when you start talking about being on the other side of the world and going around, the guy's like, how do you, how do you, go, how do you go around? And there was an entire different dimension that was completely lost on this guy. And, and so he finally kind of just gave up and went, okay, never mind. I'm really, really far this way, and I'm really far this way. And he's like, oh, okay, okay, I got it. I think the same thing applies to Christmas sometimes. I actually, uh, and I don't know, maybe this is confession time. I, don't, I, I listen to The Zone um, as a local radio station. Um, and, and maybe that, that really is confession time. I don't know. But, but they do this thing every morning um, where, where the morning co-hosts like, engage in a game of trivia, and it's called Dylan versus the World. Okay, and this week, wow, it's Christmas, so guess what? 
they decided to offer up Christmas origins as a topic in Dylan versus the world. And I just, I almost, I was almost driven to tears this week. Okay, actually, and, and Jason Lamb, the other guy who does it, he was driven to frustration and almost tears. Like, because he is, he's laying out things like the question was, you know, and so, so you got a guy on the radio that calls in and he basically plays against Dylan and they do trivia questions. And who, you know, and, and you, if you can beat Dylan, then you get like this awesome travel mug that says, you know, I, I made Dylan look like a fool on live radio or something like that. Okay. These guys cannot answer any of the questions. None of them. And, and, and the funny thing is, is if you had been here at church last week, you would have been able to answer three of them from JR's sermon, which I think was awesome. Okay. They're like, the four weeks leading up to Christmas are the nativity. You know, I mean, like, and we're like, no, no, no. You know, who was looking out of his window on the Feast of Stephen when the snow lay round about and deep in Christmas even? And my kids are like, when's this lost? When's this lost? And the guy's like, the Feast of Stephen? Who's Stephen? You know, I mean, it's just, you know, you know, Wenceslas. They're like, what does Kate Winslet have to do with this? You know, I mean, like, they're, 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 they're just, they're starting to, they're, they're starting to treat it as, like, a joke. Because, and, and that's what really, I think, I think got the other guy frustrated and, and even started to make me frustrated, is they started to treat it as a joke because it was so foreign to them. And it made me realize just, I mean, again, I think we all know this, right? But when we get to this time of Advent and we get to this time of Christmas, just how foreign of a language we're speaking sometimes when we talk about this anticipation of Christ's coming. And that that's really why we're engaging in everything that we're engaging in during this time. That there's a whole dimension that the world around us doesn't understand. But I also want to say that there may be another dimension to this that even we don't understand as Christians. And that is simply this. If we leave Advent and we leave Christmas as a static event, if we leave it as something that is static in history, like, yes, we remember that 2,000-some-odd years ago, Christ was born. And that's good. But if we leave it back there, it is, it is, we are missing an entire dimension to what this is all about. And this, is, I think, is really why we take the time to celebrate Advent every single year. Is that the coming of Christ must be drawn into a different dimension. A dimension that spans time. A dimension that's just as real now and just as pertinent now, and makes as much sense for where we are now as it did 2,000 years ago? Do we need Christ to come just as much now as we did then? If we don't explore that dimension of Christmas, if we don't explore that dimension of Advent, we have totally missed the meaning. We have totally missed the fullness and the richness of Advent. If we just see it, especially if we see our readings today that we're very, very familiar with, you know, where, where, where Gabriel comes to Mary, what we, what we normally call the, the Annunciation. If we just see that as a setup for Christ's birth, then we really miss some of the richness. There is a reason that Luke takes 
80 verses in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and there's still no Savior born yet. There's a particular reason for that, and let me tell you what that reason is. He wants us to keep from rushing through the narrative. He wants to keep us from skipping to the end. And you know what? When we've done Christmas year after year, when we've done Advent year after year, when we're kind of just going, yeah, tell me the story of Jesus, write on my heart every word, even though I already know it. You know, I, you, If we have skipped to the end already in our minds, we miss the fullness of that narrative. And that's why Luke slows us down with things like poetry. He slows us down with what we know as the Magnificat, this, 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 this poem, this song of Mary. It slows us down and it makes us think, what is God actually doing? Because Mary's, Mary's song has very little to do about what God's doing with Mary. About the first couple of verses deal with what God's doing with Mary. All the rest of it deals with what God's going to do with everybody else. And so in that, you and I find a place where God is speaking into our story. And, 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 and the fact that the power of the incarnation of God is something to be savored and it's something to be held on to, which may raise a really important question for us today. What's the tempo of your Advent narrative this year? What tempo is it running at? Are you rushing through it? Are we savoring the wonder of things like angels and annunciations and these old stories of, of childless old couples conceiving and routine services at the altar of God becoming life-changing events? Um, the author of humanity turning not to the powerful or the well-established, but to the simple and the powerless to be the bearers of his justice and mercy. Are we really savoring those things? Or are we just, is our narrative of Advent just about rushing? Like moving through traffic, moving through shopping malls, moving through office Christmas parties, moving through family get-togethers, moving and rushing through the Christmas Eve and the morning and the presents and the turkey and the Boxing Day specials and the aftermath and the winter weight and the credit card bills. And, the, and we're just kind of trying to claw our way to like the middle of January when everything slows down again. If that is the story of your Advent narrative, Luke says, slow down. Slow down. And he echoes the words that Monique kind of laid out for us during family news and prayer. Get every, like suck the marrow out of Christmas. Get every single little bit you can out of it because it is that good. And the message is just that good and that full and rich and that necessary to our lives. We don't get to the poetry even that Mary talks about, that Mary sings later in Luke 1 without getting through the Annunciation, this time where Gabriel brings the news to Mary that her life is getting turned upside down. And we don't even get to that without the tension that is happening throughout the narrative of the Annunciation. It's important for us to understand this, this really, this deep anticipation, but also anxiety that's present in this exchange between Gabriel and Mary so that we can savor the love of Jesus' birth. 
we read through this so quick, and I think sometimes we just get to the whole, like, yes, I am the Lord's handmaiden, you know, let it be to me according to your will, okay? And we emphasize that. But I want us to look at verse 29 real quick, okay? Gabriel appears to Mary and says, Greetings, you who are greatly favored by the Lord. And how does she respond? Let me tell you how she responds. She responds like everybody else that, that an angel of the Lord has ever come to has responded. I'm afraid. I am not at peace. And I am very suspicious of what's going on here. Okay? But Mary was deeply troubled and wondered what kind of greeting that this was. Okay? Because let's put it this way. If you're a 13, 14-year-old Hebrew girl, you are not considered greatly favored by the Lord. She's a nobody. She's just a kid. Just barely a woman. And she's got no, I mean, she's got no riches. She's got no, she's got nothing. And it kind of reminds me of when, it kind of reminds me of when the angel of the Lord appears to, to Gideon back in Judges and says, greetings, mighty warrior. And Gideon's like, you're talking about the, the there dude behind me? Or, like, who are you talking to? You're not talking to me, are you? And we, and, and, and I'm assuming that even, even in the, even in knowing the, the history of her people, Mary's got to know that, that, on the one hand, angels don't show up very often. And when they do, it's usually a pretty life-changing event. And not necessarily one that, that, at the beginning, you're like, oh, yay, that's exciting. And so we, we have to realize the tension that's there even at the beginning of this because the first thing that she said the first thing that she says is kind of like in her mind is is uh oh what's this all about what's this going to do to my life what's going to happen to me and why am i being called greatly favored by the lord where's the other shoe that's getting ready to drop and Gabriel goes ahead and doesn't waste any time. He just drops the other shoe right there and says, don't be afraid, but here's what's going to happen. Now, the interesting thing is, and I, and I don't want us to miss this, okay, is that even though the language is kind of Gabriel saying, don't be afraid, this is what's going to happen. It's not going to happen. Unless we can resolve the tension that's in the Annunciation. I worry that sometimes we just reduce Mary to a vessel of Jesus' birth. We, kind of, we reduce her, and maybe we do that with good reason, because of her overemphasis sometimes in other religious traditions, okay? But I worry that maybe we make it just where we just skip right to the, yes, you know, I'm the handmaid of the Lord, let it be unto me according to your will. And we miss the fact that Mary is a model disciple. And she is an illustration of God's redemption. She could be powerless in this situation, but God does not let her be powerless. Instead, what God does is he grants her an ultimate power in this story. He grants her the ability to choose to participate in the divine story. She's allowed to question She's allowed to be suspicious. 
she's allowed to say, hang on here, how exactly is this going to happen? Because I am an upstanding young Jewish girl, and my betrothed and I have not even been alone in the same room together. So, how's this all going to work out? She's allowed to ask those questions. And it's a great question for us to ask. How can this even be? Like, let's, let's not forget that that question is a really good question to ask today. Because the spirit-driven, spontaneous conception is a fantastic idea. It really is. Even with all of our modern medicine and science, can you tell me how conception spontaneously happens? Nope. No idea. It is rooted... And, I'm, and, and, and realize, be, I'm being careful when I say these words because I don't, want us to, I don't want us to immediately think that by using these words I mean not true. It is deeply true. But it is ideas that are rooted in fantasy and imagination. Which means that they must be supernatural. They must be beyond what I can grasp and I need to accept that. And when Mary is asking, how can this be? She's kind of looking for something a little more natural of an explanation. And Gabriel doesn't do that. He offers a supernatural explanation. And he just says, nothing is impossible with God. And you know what? When he says that, he actually reaches way, 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 way back to the exact same thing that he said to Abraham and Sarah. When they're like, how can this be? We're an old childless couple, and you're saying that we're going to have kids, that we're going to have a whole nation, and that through us, all the, all the nations in the world are going to be blessed. And he just goes, nothing is impossible with God. Reaches way, way back to that promise and brings it up into Mary's time. and says, it's still true today, nothing is impossible with God. This may be impossible from a natural standpoint. You may not get it. You may not understand it. There may be no rational way to explain it. And hey, guess what? We can reach back and take that same thing and bring it up in today. And we go, how can this be? And Gabriel just shrugs his shoulders and says, come on now. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible. The only answer to Mary's question is a two-parter. She and Elizabeth are going to bear sons because God is able. And we will benefit from the sons that they bear because God is gracious. And isn't that really the driving characteristics of God anyway? Are they not even the definition of love itself? Ability and graciousness intertwined. Not just the ability to act, but the ability to act with grace in mind. That is what has characterized God from the very beginning. That's what characterizes him in the story. And that's what characterizes him today. Is that he is able... And that he is gracious. And therefore he is love. And we see those two eye we see those two ideas wrapped all around this enunciation. And now comes the really, really awesome part that I don't want us to miss. Because now not just Gabriel, but all of heaven and all of the story and everything that's led up to this point holds its breath. Because the pitch has been made. And the questions have been asked. And the answer has been given. 
And if you notice in, in the narrative, it's an entirely separate line. And I wonder how long that pause was, you know, between, between Gabriel making his pitch and the words that we've been waiting to hear. Will Mary accept this invitation to be the vessel that births love incarnate into the world? God has given her the capacity to act and allows her the choice to couple ability with graciousness and participate in the gospel. And with the words, I am the handmaiden, the willing servant and representative of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will. She acts on her conviction. She acts on the conviction that she is allowed by the redemptive power of God to be a part of the gospel story. To be a participant. It is said that every minister is able to find the story of their calling to serve God in the Annunciation. That for all of us at one point or another, and I have mine, that there was a point where God basically said, here it is. Will you take it? And my words had to be kind of the same. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will. But I want to extend that out even farther because I don't think it's the story of every minister. I think it's the story of every disciple. Anyone who has ever accepted the call to follow God has had God do this to them and say, here it is. Will you accept it? Will you take it? And we have all, in one way or another, had to say, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your will. Will we be the vessels that birth the incarnate love of God into our narrative? That is what takes the Annunciation and takes it from being something way, way, way long ago and pulls it into my today. And I don't want us to miss that. Because this is where the poetry of Luke and the Magnificat is designed to slow us down this Advent and Christmas season. Like I said, Mary's song is, is, is very little about what God is doing in her situation and much more about what God is doing in all situations to come, including ours. I'm a language geek, unapologetically, and I want to highlight something out of this, that in this whole poem... From verse 50 on, when, when Mary gets done talking about herself and then starts talking about everything else that the Lord is doing, okay? His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm and scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. When, when she starts really getting into all of this stuff that God does, the Greek uses a future tense the righteous and merciful acts that are going to happen for generations to come, but all the verbs are in what we call the aorist tense, past tense verb, like something happened. And it seems really weird, because how do you take future and past and slap them together? I mean, it just sounds like a mess of the language, right? But what I want us to realize is it's an intentional device. It's something, it's something that happens in the Hebrew understanding. And here's what it is, okay? Why do we pair up future images with verbs happening in the past? On the one hand, it simply states that the faithfulness of God 
in the faithfulness of God to come, if we're going to see that, it's all based on the faithfulness of God before. What he has done, he will continue to do. Okay, there's some of that. But even more than that, it is a mark of utter confidence. It is a mark of utter confidence in the power of God. Mary's proclamation of song is borderline prophetic because it expresses the certainty that what God is going to do, we are so confident in it, such unshakable terms as to say it is already finished before it's even begun. Think about that. To be so confident that God is going to redeem, that he is going to establish his kingdom, that he is going to, that he is going to raise up those who are without, and he is going to bring down those who believe that they are their own God, that he is going to make this world right again. And say it with such confidence, even though we don't see it yet, but to say it's already happened. It's already happened. This is just the aftermath. It's already done. This is just the working out of the details. As soon as the Annunciation was accepted, salvation was already in the back. That's how confident Mary is and how confident we can be about God's ability and His graciousness. I think for us, this poetry is begging to be the song of our Advent today. Where we look at, because don't forget this. God gives you many annunciations all day long. Every day of your life, there is something in your workplace waiting for you. There is something in your family waiting for you. There is something in the people that you know and the people that you don't know and the people that you're going to bump into. There is something here today when you walk out the door, okay? I can be prophetic in this because I see it in Scripture, okay? There is an opportunity where God is going to put his hand out towards you and say, here it is. Do you want it? Here it is. Will you accept it? Here it is. Will you participate in it? And we have the opportunity to say, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your will. We have the opportunity to grab it every day. Every day. This is allowed to be the story of our Advent. Of, of, of being so confident in God's graciousness and God's ability that when we say, yes, let it be to me according to your will... And we really give ourselves over to the service of God and we give ourselves over to being participants in the gospel. It's already happened. God just works out the details from here on out. That's how confident we're allowed to be in his ability and his graciousness working through his spirit in us. And that is an amazing reality for us to hold on to. Not just in this Christmas time, but like our whole lives. Do we have the faith this season to let our answer be like Mary? Do we have the faith to bear love incarnate in our world? To be vessels that birth the love of Christ? That actually make him manifest, right? In the same way that Mary was a vessel for the manifest love of God. It took on hands and feet and voice and became Jesus of Nazareth. 
but it also has the ability to be birthed out of us and take on hands and feet and voice and life and be called Travis or David or Carolyn or anybody. Because that is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. At the end of Romans, chapter 16, there is an amazing little kind of end exhortation, a little, it's, it's, it's glorifying God, but it's also a big challenge, and I just want to read it to you real quick. This is what Paul says. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now has been revealed, and now is made known through the prophetic writing by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. I want us to think about something in this, and I want us to really think about it in, in the idea of this annunciation being present in my life every day. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel. Far as I know, and I mean there's there's scholarship all over the place on this, but far as I know, Paul never wrote a gospel. Okay? Luke borrows some of his stuff and uses some other sources and, and, and writes the narrative of Luke that we have, okay? But there isn't a gospel according to Paul in our Bible, or is there? Or is there? Because if you think of all the letters that he writes, and all the work that he does, and all the things that are that that are even outside of this, his life, he looks at it as my gospel. And I really want us to think about this. I'm not talking about a self-focused gospel. I'm not talking about the gospel according to me, okay? Like where I pick out the parts that I like and I discard the parts that I don't like. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a consumer gospel. What I am saying is, is that for every single one of us, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is being told according to you and me. How we present Christ incarnate in our words, in our deeds, in our lives, in our days, we are writing a gospel according to Travis and a gospel according to Diane, and a gospel according to Art, and a gospel according to Leona, and a gospel according to everybody in this room. Every day, you and I are asked to be participants in a personalized gospel that God is writing out of our lives. If that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. Because when I stop and think about that, that the things that I do are actually writing a whole new account of the goodness of Christ Jesus alive in me. It changes the whole game. It changes the whole nature of why I do what I do. It changes the whole nature of Christmas. And so, let us strive to marry this proclamation of Jesus Christ with this reality of him creating a gospel in me. 
and let it motivate our lives with this utter assurance and this joyful expectation that comes from the reality of the fact that he's doing these things right now in you and I. Heaven holds its breath again. It's not what we expect. It's often a complete shift of our foundation in our life when we accept the annunciation of God into our lives. But today, this is the story of the love of Advent. That love has been proclaimed to us. That God has not just put salvation in our hands as a gift. He has also given it to us as a great gift to be birthed in us and given to the world around us. It is to, to quote the cliche, the gift that keeps on giving. And so my prayer for us, church, is may our lives proclaim, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices greatly.